Hey all, Montel here, and thanks so much for tuning in to today's Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Today I'm talking with a man who is really shaking things up. His mission in life is to do good and seek justice. He is a civil rights activist and a native of Baton Rouge, Louisiana, who's working on destigmatizing and also really in some ways decriminalizing cannabis shoes. He's running for the U.S. Senate and hoping to unseat incumbent John N. Kennedy. He recently released the first ever campaign ad for United States Senate, where he, as a candidate, is openly smoking cannabis. Mr. Gary Chambers, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thank you for having me, brother. Absolutely, sir. You know, I did some 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 quick reading about your background, man, but I really would love for you to just fill our viewers in about who you are, where you're from, and you know what it was like growing up in Louisiana. So let's 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 talk about your background completely. Where were you? Where were you born? You were born in Louisiana, right? I was born here in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, born and raised, and uh, spent all of my life in the South. Uh, lived in Jacksonville, Florida, for five years. Uh, but most of my life here in Baton Rouge and uh, started a family young and got divorced and started a business and uh, did all the things that young people do to try to figure life out. Um, and somewhere along the way, I uh, became an advocate. Um, I kind of read in the newspaper that I was an activist. I didn't know it. Uh, <laughs> that was what I was doing. I was really just using the platform that I had. Uh, to speak about the issues that were important to people in my community. Um, and that kind of propelled me into uh, political conversations. And I think that's how we got where we are today. Gotcha. Now, I, I'm, I, I hope that I don't open up wounds by asking a question, but you, your, your mother died at a very young age for you, right? Let's talk a little bit about that. So my biological mother committed suicide when I was two months old. Um, mm. And I was asked a question recently if I could go to dinner with any person living or deceased, who would it be? And it would be my mother. And do, do, do you think that that uh, uh, act that she did was because of postpartum depression, or what was it? What was it because of? Do you know? So I'm certain that it was postpartum depression. Uh, I'm not sure if back in 1985 that uh, medicine or science was fully understanding of what women were dealing with. My mom had. Uh, three small children, myself, plus my two older sisters. One was three, one was one and a two month old. Um, and a husband who uh, wasn't the most faithful at the time. Um, and all of, I think the challenges of life were on this 26 year old young woman. Um, and she decided to take her life. Uh, and that is something that really shaped my, my early years. As a result, my father, uh, who was her high school sweetheart, uh, ended up an alcoholic until I was 10. Um, because of her death or? Other it was all after her death. Um, right. He kind of had this uh, spiral effect and he went through his own challenges in life, uh, but he had an older sister, uh, Yvonne and her husband, William, who took me in at two months old. Uh, and and who you consider your mother and father? I do. I call both of them. So I got, I tell people God knew I was going to be so much that he gave me two daddies and, and a mama. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and so, there you go. Uh, William uh, and Yvonne took me in and raised me as their own. And uh, I'm not going to lie to you, brother. They gave me a, a better life than I deserve. 
we weren't rich people, but we were rich in love. Um, and I didn't know that we didn't have a lot of money because, you know, we lived in a decent uh, middle class neighborhood. And uh, my mom was a school teacher. My dad was a janitor, um, went to church every Sunday and did all of the normal traditional things. But uh, I, I think everything that I am is really a, a product of who they are. Got it. And and do they set you on this course to being active in your community and, and, and wanting to help out and, and reach so, out? To so you? I wouldn't say that they set me on the course, but they gave me the, the character to, to remain on it. Um, my, my dad, William, is uh, 79, uh, grew up in the civil rights movement, uh, was in college at a time when um, protests were breaking out for civil rights and voting rights and things of that nature. And so um, his view of America and the truth thereof, the South, um, deep, deeply shaped my political perspective and my view of the world. Um, and my mother, I can remember in the 90s, uh, she would be in prayer and I can remember her calling out uh, the Sudan and calling out world leaders and praying uh, that God would deliver people in certain parts of the world. Uh, and that was kind of like a spiritual awakening to, uh, I guess, the the moral cause that is uh, worked out through government, right? Uh, that, that government is a construct ran by people that should serve people, uh, but does not always do so. So I think all of that was shaped by them. Uh, and then my desire just to see a, a better outcome in the community that I grew up in um, kind of created the fight that existed in me. And, you know, uh, so when did you really start your social activism? About 2015, 2014. So the, the kind of like everybody else, when Trayvon Martin uh, was killed in, in 2012, I had a platform called The Rouge Collection and it's a media platform and I wrote columns uh, as the publisher of the platform. And I wrote about Trayvon Martin when that happened. And when Mike Brown happened in 2014, uh, 2015, I wrote a column and held my first town hall. Um, and following that town hall, there was a brother named Lamar Johnson here in Louisiana in 2015 who was arrested um, in a little small town called Baker. He had a normal traffic stop, ended up going to Paris prison. Um, and a few days later, they said that he allegedly hung himself. Um, his, his mother was seeking answers. He was in an ICU um, here in Baton Rouge. And uh, the news reports here would not write about it because they said it, his death, he, he eventually died. And they said his death was ruled a suicide. Uh, so that they didn't write about suicides. Uh, being someone who lost his mother to suicide, I understand that people are seeking answers in, in moments like that. And so I wrote columns about it. Uh, 40,000 people read the first column I wrote about Lamar Johnson. A um, few months later, our district attorney here in Baton Rouge, Hilla Moore, attempted to reopen this thing called a misdemeanor jail where they were rounding up people who had traffic violations and putting them in uh, the city court jail. Uh, long story short, we showed up at a city council meeting and killed the misdemeanor jail. Baton Rouge has never had one since. And my logic was that if you can't maintain the jail that you already have, you don't need a temporary jail. Um, and so we killed it. And that's kind of how I got into advocacy and finding out that one issue at the other, after the other 
the government was taking our tax dollars and spending it on things that didn't actually serve our community or help make us safer or stronger. Um, and I just never stopped going. And you did things like uh, even rename a high school in your area, did not? Talk a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, uh, most folks found school. out about me from roasting Connie at a school board meeting before I ever smoked the blood on camera. Say that uh, again? Most folks found out about me from roasting Connie at a school board meeting. Mm -hmm. uh, I went viral in 2020 um, for checking her while she was shopping at the meeting. And uh, that kind of gave folks a bigger view into the advocacy we had done. The name of the school was Lehigh. Uh, my daughter was is in middle school here in Baton Rouge, and she's on a track where she would end up at that school. And uh, I told her mom she wasn't going to a school named after somebody uh, that was a bigot. And her mama said, well, uh, you must be going to change the name of the school. And so uh, we worked to help get the name of the change, the, the name of the school changed. Uh, and, and, and you said it quickly, but what precipitated that was the fact that, what, did you videotape that that uh, board member sitting there during the meeting? So people were actually testifying, but this board member was sitting there shopping online. She was shopping, uh, looking up clothes and stuff. And I know Connie personally, and so I just knew that uh, if I didn't get video or picture proof, she was going to lie. Um, and so I just got a video of it and then confronted her when I got my turn to speak on the mic. And uh, people were uh, deeply moved by by that encounter. I'm just glad we got the name of the school changed ultimately, because all of that's for nothing if we don't actually get the policies changed. Absolutely. And then you, you also had another run in with another politician, did you not? Uh, I, I've always got something going on. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. And then so there you are, activists. Now, what got you interested in running for office? Well, when you meet your politicians and you realize um, how all of this works uh, and uh, the truth is many of them, they have good hearts. They mean well, but they lack courage. Um, and the courage is, is a major part of what's necessary to make wholesale change in communities uh, like the one I grew up in in North Baton Rouge, where uh, black, a black male in North Baton Rouge makes 50 cent on a dollar to that of which uh, a white male in Baton Rouge makes. Uh, and uh, two emergency rooms closed in North Baton Rouge, grocery stores and things of that nature closing. And when I started talking to my elected officials, most of them had no solutions, no ideas about how they could solve these problems, uh, just a bunch of press conferences about the problem. And so uh, we were already without a title or a position helping uh, fight to move and change policy. And so the, the reality became to me one day that if you want to see certain things change, you got to just go in there and do it yourself. And so I decided to run. And what office did you run for first? So I ran for the state Senate first. Uh, I got obliterated in that race, if I'm honest, Montel. Uh, gotcha. I didn't know uh, much about the way the political structure works at the time. Um, and what I didn't have in uh, support as far as a large following that I have now, it was difficult to raise financial resources because I was challenging the machine every day. So, of course, the people who give in politics locally weren't going to support my campaign. Uh, I ran in the congressional race last year. Um, for a special election to replace Cedric Richmond, and we missed that election by 1,500 votes. Um, and we're we could have had a runoff, right? I mean, you 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 got what 20? We missed the runoff. 
You got about 28, 28% of the vote, but you missed 23 and a half percent of the wow. vote. We missed it by less than a percentage point. We beat, beat a sitting state senator in her Senate district in New Orleans um, mm-hmm. and won 148 out of 300 precincts in Orleans Parish, which for a boy from Baton Rouge is pretty impressive. And you, um, had, a, you had a good mix of, of people who were following you. You not only had the black vote, but you got a large percentage of the, uh, the white vote in your town, right? We carried the white vote in New Orleans, um, and and we did so because uh, we were very intentional and aggressive about talking about the policies that are important to addressing issues. Um, we didn't spend a lot of time around politicians and uh, wine and cheese crowds. We did this thing called backyard conversations uh, because of COVID, and we went into people's backyards, into their businesses, uh, and had conversations with them about the issues that were important to them, earned their trust, and then earned their vote uh on election day, we believe we can build momentum from that and what we're doing now. Hey, you know, that sounds like a, a good good example of how I mean what what party what party are you aligned to? Are you the Democratic party? party. I'm a Democrat. Okay. Well I mean it would see it would seem to me that that's a, a blueprint for Democrats of the day to, you know, get off the, the stick and get off of TV and get into some backyards and having some conversations directly with the people, letting them understand where you stand. I think for me, uh, because I got into this from an advocacy perspective, that if the people aren't centered in it, then it's it's not authentic for me. Um, That, you know, we've had a way of doing politics that has worked for the status quo and bureaucrats, uh, but not necessarily for working class people uh, who fund this government, who pay taxes into this government for us to be able to do the things that we do. Um, And I hope that some of the things that we're doing are catching the attention of the Democratic Party. Uh, I'd be an independent if uh, it were more possible for independents to be elected. Um, But because we have a two-party structure, I'm more aligned with the Democratic Party. I I personally personally stepped away from the Democratic Party. I I had already stepped away from the Republican Party because I used to be in the military. And, you know, like a lot of military folks, I, I did back in the day ridiculously align myself some with the Republican Party with some of the things, but I was never really a true Republican. And then I stepped away from the Republican Party, um, you know, uh, when I recognized that the, everything they were saying was nothing but lip service being the party of Lincoln and those kinds of things. And then I tried to align with the Democratic Party, but I, I found that tough also because, you know, there are some things in the Democratic Party that I can't align with personally because of my own views. And so I am now registered as an independent and vote that way because I believe in voting for the issue at hand, not by some platform that somebody else put forth that I may not agree with. So I I understand, but I also understand that we are locked into this two party, you know, quagmire that we don't want to seem to let go of. I was an independent until uh, I think 2008. Uh, when President Obama was running for office, I think I changed to the Democratic Party. And I changed to the Democratic Party in part because Louisiana has closed primaries for the presidential election. Right. Uh, so if you're an independent, you don't even get to cash your vote uh, for who gets the presidential nomination in uh, the presidential primary process. And so that's how I originally got locked into the party. And then when I got into politics, understanding that every independent I saw run on the ballot in Louisiana Uh, for the most part, lost. And if you were going to get the attention of uh, the demographics of people that you needed to galvanize, uh, you needed to be a part of the party. But I think that there is uh, a day coming that there may be 
more than one part, more than these two parties that exist, or a revolution of the parties, because I think that where the parties are, both both parties internally are fracturing. Um, and where that leaves the country on the other side of them, I hope is a better place uh, where there are more options for the American people. I mean, I think very, very clearly you can see that. And a lot of people, unfortunately, get caught up in the idea. They think that, you know, Democrat, Republican, that means 50-50. That's not true. I mean, we know nowadays that, you know, the, the Republican Party only represents probably about 31 percent of the people in this country, if that. And the Democratic Party represents somewhere between 30, 31, 32 percent of the public. But that still leaves another 34 percent of the public out there that don't align with anyone. And so when you see some of these polls that come forth saying, well, you know, 70 percent of Republicans feel like X, Y, Z. Well, let's get this right. If there's 70 percent of the Republicans, then you know, that's literally there's maybe 60 million Republicans, 70 million Republicans total. So there's 70 million Republicans total, you know, 70 percent of them is now we're talking 50 million people. We're not talking about half of the U.S. population. We have 350 million people in this country. So I think people need to start understanding that what we thought was real politics in America of, let's say, the 60s and the 70s no longer exists. And I believe you're right. I think that, you know, coming down the pike, we're going to have to have representation for that third of this country that doesn't agree. And some of them are, you know, I I, I, I hate to say it this way, and I, I don't cast aspersions, but some of them are mindless. They don't seem to care. And because we've now pitted Democrat against Republicans so hard that we have pushback from the political system. So there are those who just say, well, I'm not going to do anything because I don't want to be a part of this. Well, they're not doing anything, not being a part of this will be a part of the reason why we change in the wrong direction. I agree fully. I, I don't think that we get to take our toys and go home. Uh, no. That it's it's too important. Uh, and, and here's the deal. You can't stop paying taxes. Correct. Right? Uh, you're going to pay taxes. And so not voting or not participating in the process is one, ensuring that people who don't share your views uh, get the uh, opportunity to win because you're not ensuring that your views are uh, accounted for. And two, it's allowing other people to decide what happens with the money that you pay into the government. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that when you personalize it that way, you can do a better job of, of how you navigate that. Would you suggest that that's something that the Democratic Party needs to, at its top and higher echelon, needs to start talking about. I mean, honestly, it, it sickens me some of the messaging out of them that, that they recognize clearly is nothing more than divisive in a way to send people scurrying away rather than recognizing that what they're saying, I get what they're trying to accomplish. However, you are being so divisive in the wording that you send people off on their own little you know, tirade against a misunderstanding. Well, I think that it's my job in this in this position right now to do everything that I can to lead by example uh, and give the Democratic Party an option that they can follow moving forward. And so we're trying to do that with every opportunity we get to, to speak the truth as, as we see it, right, uh, to present a different way of doing things. You know, I don't really do nasty, dark attack ads. That's not my thing. Um, but I will make fun of you uh, because yeah. I think that people have more uh, of an appetite for humor around some of the things that are uh, 
divisive in this country than they do you just trying to make somebody look like the boogeyman every day. So Gary, I mean, just just talking about it for me, and I and I don't believe that you put your your ad was put together because you were trying to be funny. However, the ad may have come across to some in a weird way. Let's take a look at this ad that you did. And in this ad, I mean, I, I want to ask a couple questions about it. So let's take a look at it right now. Can we put it in? Every 37 seconds, someone is arrested for possession of marijuana. Since 2010, state and local police have arrested an estimated 7.3 million Americans for violating marijuana laws, over half of all drug arrests. Black people are four times more likely to be arrested for marijuana laws than white people. States waste $3.7 billion enforcing marijuana laws every year. Most of the people police are arresting aren't dealers, but rather people with small amounts of pot, just like me. I'm Gary Chambers, and I'm running for the U.S. Senate, and I approve this message. So wait, my brother, whose who's idea was it for you to actually smoke cannabis in a campaign ad? So my comms director, Eric Sanchez, uh, texted me a script on Friday afternoon, uh, the week before we dropped it, the video. Uh, and said he wanted us to have a conversation about it. Uh, we talked, uh, and uh, my media director, Erwin, the young uh, African-American filmmaker here in Louisiana, um, we sat and talked about it with Eric. And uh, I had smoked cannabis in a video before in 2020, 2021 when we went to California um, and use cannabis and don't see uh, the conflict and issue with it. Um, and want to use the platform that I have to uh, destigmatize it and ultimately get it legalized all over this country. And when we were debating whether or not we would do this, we knew that it would create a conversation. The question was, were we ready to be a part of that conversation? Um, and was it going to have a negative uh, drawback on us? Uh, the answer in the end was it didn't. Um, right. I was nervous about whether it would, uh, but it's because I believe of the tone that we took with the ad. We took a very serious tone. Uh, we made sure that the message was strong uh, and on the facts about uh, the data that says that uh, every 37 seconds, someone is arrested in this country for use of cannabis, while 19 states are now legalized recreational cannabis. 30, so 19 legalized recreational, but you now have 38 states. I, Mississippi just passed. A 38 states with medical cannabis. Plus the District of Columbia. Go ahead. And, and where we are as a country, um, I just believe that this is um, a gateway drug, right? But a gateway for us to have uh, new bridges, new roads, new schools, and investment into our communities in a way that we have not seen in some of these southern states. Uh, I believe that it's a gateway to new opportunity in new industry uh, in agriculture for uh, specifically young African-American men who may have an interest in farming cannabis that they may not have uh, in farming chickens or hogs or uh, greens, right? Um, and so being able to, to see a new gateway and a new opportunity for us um, and a more equitable and just one, because in a society where uh, we know black and brown people have been over incarcerated for cannabis use, uh, people are literally still in Angola Penitentiary uh, on life sentences for basically what amounts to simple possession of cannabis, 
while in California, Illinois, Colorado, and other states, people are now making millions of dollars uh, for something that we have incarcerated people for. And so tell the, me about the real about the law in Louisiana. Were you not, were you worried about the Louisiana law? You just have a medical program, right? So we have a medical program here, which is extremely expensive for the, the average person. Um, and Southern University and LSU are the growers for the state of Louisiana. Um, and then it's dispensed to several pharmacies and you've got to go to a specific doctor to get a prescription in order to get a prescription to go and buy the cannabis from those pharmacies. And so uh, it's not the most difficult thing to do, but it is uh, certainly more difficult than someone who can just walk into a dispensary uh, and get that which they need. Well, now, were you worried about filming? I mean, because no one knows what location you were on when you actually filmed that. But I mean, were you worried about there being any pushback saying that, well, are you a member of the medical cannabis community in Louisiana? So, no, I'm not. Uh, and we weren't worried because uh, the organization I run, Bigger Than Me, helped pass legislation in New Orleans last August uh, that further decriminalized cannabis in New Orleans, uh, where now police don't even stop for cannabis. Uh, there are new policies that if you are even cited uh, for cannabis in New Orleans, that it's automatically pardoned by the city council there. Um, and so because of that, we felt comfortable that we could shoot the video in, in Orleans Parish. Uh, but the state of Louisiana decriminalized cannabis uh, this year. As a matter of fact, the legislation passed last year, became law this year. So it's supposed to be a citation. I know that all sheriffs in the 64 parishes are not abiding by that at this stage. Uh, but I think that we will get to a place where uh, the decriminalization is is truly uh, where we are. I think we're not far from recreational uh, here in Louisiana. Maybe a few votes in the House. The question is, can we pass it in the Senate? Well, that, and, and again, now, if you become <coughs> a senator, and you, the, then you're starting to look at this from a national point of view. And, you know, we see how tightly you know, wound our Senate is in this this position where we're almost a stalemate. And unfortunately, in the midterms, we may swing in the wrong direction. Um, but cannabis has always been one of those issues that I think, whether they want to admit it or not, both right and left see eye to eye. I mean, when we take a look at, you know, the fact that Mitch McConnell was the primary pusher of the, you know, hemp bill to legalize hemp, because he wanted to make sure his constituents had an opportunity at, you know, a lucrative um, business opportunity. Um, and we also know that even if you look at January 6th last year, the only thing that, you know, the far right had in common with the far left is that the, a lot of those people that broke into the, the Capitol were running around in the Capitol smoking cannabis. So um, what do you think from a national perspective, first off, how has some of the other Democratic senators looked at your ad outside of your state? Do you think that you will be embraced when and if you actually become a senator? So uh, we have already started having uh, different folks reach out from around the country uh, and their their counterparts of the people who help them make decisions about who they support. Uh, and we think that it definitely gave us a, a doorway and a conversation into members of uh, the Congress and the Senate. Um, and we're excited about that. I think that it's a conversation that more legislators want to have. Uh, I'm not sure legislators are at the point where they're willing to openly use cannabis. Uh, but I think that they, they, they believe that 
this is a necessary conversation. But I'm, I'm, I'm so, and, and, and believe me, my friend, I hope that you are absolutely 100% right, right. But what, what throws me is that, you know, remember we had both a president and a vice president running on a campaign claiming that they were going to make some different approaches to cannabis in the first hundred days in office. And they've now turned around and, you know, covered their rear ends and not spoken about it or even spoken about it, you know, in a positive way. I mean, remember, we still got a president. You use the term gateway drug, looking at gateway to opportunity. We have a president who looks at it as a gateway to, you know, a debacle. And, you know, so, and then, you know, as much as we've thought nationally that, you know, the Democratic Party was a supporter of change in this area, most of them seem to be hiding. So I think that's why, I think that's why someone like me is necessary uh, because, you need someone who's going to actually push the line on it. Uh, we see the power of one U.S. senator. Senator Joe Manchin and Senator Kristen Sinema have used their power uh, to, uh, in my opinion, negatively impact the progress of this country. But one senator could also do the same to positively impact the progress of this country. Uh, because you can leverage your vote with a president. You can have those conversations and lean them in a direction that they may not be there. And I'm not sure we have that advocate in the Senate yet. Uh, I think that there are people who are certainly supportive, uh, but to the degree that uh, I'm willing to be, I'm not sure we have a member of the U.S. Senate that way uh, that's there, but I'm willing to be that person and to push the president. And I think that this conversation that we're creating is going to push him. Uh, and that's why we're continuing to have this conversation as much as we are in every platform we can, uh, because we think that there can be a national momentum uh, especially going into midterms where President Biden has delivered on very little uh, that he has committed to. Um, and so the things that he can institute by the stroke of his pen, which is uh, descheduling cannabis, is something that we can push uh, that the president does before midterm elections the same way he can do something about student loan debts and other things in the environment. Uh, we have to make sure that everything within our power to do uh, that can be done is done before these midterm elections or we will lose uh, pivotal pivotal seats around this country because the American people want results. They don't want to hear a bunch of people making up false promises and claiming that you support something. Show us that you mean that by the legislation that you produce or the executive orders that you sign in order to move this country forward. So, you know, and I don't know if, are you aware of, uh, you know, do you know Red, of course you know Red Man, right? Say it one more time. Of course you know Red Man, right? Yes. Yes. Well, you know, um, um, Reggie Noble, um, Redman uh, started and helped to facilitate the um, sanctioning of the first national cannabis party that is now a federally sanctioned party. Were you aware of that? No, I wasn't. That's interesting. Yes, absolutely. And though as a registered Democrat, you can still support the initiatives. And I've just recently been brought on as the chairman of the board for NCP, which is the National Cannabis Party, but we are looking to, you know, hopefully before the midterms get out here across this country and get people, you know, focused in on the fact that, you know, this has been, you know, a canard, a fabrication for the last hundred years in this country. And, you know, cannabis and hemp could be a saving grace for America if we 
got behind all of its utilitarian usages, everything from, you know, the fact that we're not just talking about human consumption here. We're talking about a plant that has the ability to actually help when it comes to infrastructure in America, because we do know that hempcrete, which is concrete made from hemp, is stronger, more durable, lasts longer, has the ability to sequester greenhouse gases. Um, we know that we can make fiber, we can make uh, 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 insulation for houses and buildings, we can make ropes, we can make other things that we can actually, you know, cover, you know, uh, municipality structures with hemp, hemp, and that hemp will sequester CO2 from the atmosphere. So there are so many things that we can be doing. We know that there's probably about 2,500 uses of the hemp plant, cannabis plant, that we're not even scratching the surface of. And there'll be things that, you know, the NCP is going to be putting forth. I'll, I'll make sure that, you know, we get you a little information. I'll let you get your office Please. about that so that, you know, this might be something that'll help you along the way as we move forward. Because one of the things that the NCP wants to try to do is to raise funding to then support candidates who support cannabis. Please, I really do want to have that conversation. I think it's necessary. I literally was having a conversation with someone the other day about uh, hemp bricks and, and the infrastructure components that uh, hemp could be a, a part of uh, for the environment. Yeah, people that people don't even understand. I mean, right now, I, I, I'm involved with a company out of and what's going to end up happening is if America doesn't pay attention, we're going to get literally left behind by international innovation, but I'm involved in a company out of Columbia, South America, that is called One World Products, who is headed up by uh, Isaiah Thomas. Remember Isaiah? Isaiah Thomas, NBA fame. Well, Isaiah Thomas has a company out of Columbia, South America, that is right now a publicly traded company. Uh, they have around you know a million hectares of land under contract and have the ability to grow thousands and thousands of acres of hemp right now and have already signed a contract internationally with a major car manufacturer so that they can start providing hemp plastics to automobiles. People aren't even aware of the fact that you can make plastic out of hemp. We can also utilize hemp fiber to make graphene, a graphene type product that has more electrical storage capability than graphite. Wow. So, I mean, you know, the plant has endless usages. And, you know, as we just, you know, get stuck in the stupid here in the United States, focusing on one or two usages, the rest of the world is trying to get ahead of us and will beat us to the punch, I believe in manufacturing other products and goods in hemp. And that's a reason for us to jump on this immediately. Well, I think, go yeah. ahead. No, I'll go ahead. Like, go ahead. You think? I think that everything you just brought to the table is valuable and things that should be a part of the national conversation. Absolutely. And, you know, I think in, in states like Louisiana, I mean, you touched on it, you touched on it very, very well. The fact that the, the incarceration rate, in America still for cannabis violations. I mean, that's one of the things that just goes right over people's heads. I mean, with the vice president, when she was the attorney general in California, she made sure that there were more black and brown people arrested for minor cannabis violations than her predecessor. And this is the same person during their campaign claimed that they were going to do as much as they could to help 
changed laws, but has done nothing since. A leopard doesn't change its spots, brother. Absolutely. And I know that you you uh, worked at uh, uh, beating up a politician who had some very deleterious things to say about her. And I applaud you for that because, you know, the, the, there was no right for anyone to denigrate, you know, the vice president the way they were. However, you know, I think we need to hold her accountable for her own past egregiances against us ourselves. I mean, he ran on a campaign of wanting to make sure that, you know, black and brown people had more opportunity. Yet, you know, those opportunities she ensured were taken away from so many in the state of California in a state that already had a legal cannabis program. Well, what I'll tell you, a friend of mine, uh, Kevin Griffin Clark, uses a quote, accountability is not an attack. Uh, and holding the vice president accountable to do what she said and what the president said is not attacking them. It is simply asking them to do what you said you do. That's right. it. Absolutely. And now, you know, just in general, as you move around Louisiana, you know, what has been, you know, the feedback that you've gotten from constituents? Overwhelmingly positive. Uh, the, the, the beauty of this is even the people who don't like it, the people my mother's age who may have uh, some some trepidation about it or uh, hesitation, uh, those folks aren't going to vote for John Kennedy, right? Um, and we have turned the lights on to uh, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of young voters in this state uh, who are now turned on to our campaign, excited about it, uh, because they're, they're more relatable to us than they are to uh, probably any other political figure that they've seen. And that sparks the opportunity for them to actually go ahead and Google your website and dig into the other issues that you're focusing on. Give me some of the other issues that you're focusing on other than the cannabis. The biggest thing for us is the economy and how do we diversify uh, Louisiana's economy and this country's economy. Cannabis is one way that we can do that. How do we invest in research and technology in a way that uh, allows us to deal with the environmental issues that we have? Louisiana is a state that is ranked 49th in the environment. Um, we have to have environmental solutions that uh, look towards green technology and green options for the future. We're married to the oil and gas industry here, but that doesn't uh, produce a hell of a lot of jobs for us because our economy is ranked 49th in the nation. Um, and what I want to see is how do we build a system or a government that ensures that all of the resources that we're voting on down there as far as legislation is concerned is attached to real, prob real problem-solving uh, pieces of the pie. How do we uh, make sure that families who are struggling with income, right, uh, this t child tax income credit that they that they have where uh, families are getting $300 a child, how do we make sure that that's continuing because it's helping us decrease child poverty in this country? How do we make sure that people can earn a livable wage? Uh, I'm a small business owner and nobody that works for me makes minimum wage uh, because at the end of the day, if, if you are employing people, but they are still needing uh, government assistance, then we're not making sure that people are fully gainfully employed. Uh, and those are things that we can address at the federal level and strip away uh, states' ability to make this uh, a winner's-losers game in America, but rather one where the government works for everybody. Absolutely. And and now, now just let me, let me shift you for a second out of Louisiana, because, again, if you win your race, you will be in D.C., and dealing with the quagmire in D.C., um, 
you know, it just seems that we are at such a stalemate. I mean, how do you, how can you convince those on the other side of the aisle to stop hating and start to listen? Because, I mean, I, all I see is just uh, uh, groups of politicians who hate each other rather than even willing to listen to, you know, the topic again. I can't believe that, you know, uh, Senator Manchin, who knows the constituency, uh, knows his supporters in West Virginia need, you know, uh, jobs. They need infrastructure. They need, you know, that family, that child credit. They need help in child care and, and, and minimum wage just will just say no, 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 no. I'm, 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 and I met Senator Manchin and, you know, in my conversations with him, um, I had years ago, I, I didn't see the same person that I see get in front of the TV who just seems to be there now to dig or, or, or bang in a deeper wedge. How do you, what do you do, my friend, to see if you can get some of these people at least sit down and have a conversation? Well, I think first you just start by doing just what you said, try to sit down and have a conversation with people uh, rather than spending all your time talking against them before you had an opportunity to share ideas and, and, and perspective. The other part of that is, to be very strategic about growing our own party uh, and making sure that more people that share the same views get elected um, and being more strategic about that. Um, Republicans, for better or worse, are working 10 years down the line to figure out how they're going to win elections. Uh, we have to have that same level of strategy and intentionality uh, if we're going to grow our margins and ensure that more people with our perspective uh, are there to vote and creating a, 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 a conversation where um, we stick to the issue more than the ideology. Um, because if it's good for uh, Kentucky or Louisiana or California, it's good policy, right? And how do we have a conversation about what is good policy for every portion of this country? Um, and if you start there, I think that there will be some people that you can find two or three things that you can agree on. And maybe there's everything else that we fight like hell on, right? Uh, but what are the two or three things that everybody in this country says we want to get done to help people on? And let's get those things done. I mean, as we see bridges collapse before the president makes speeches and things like that, we know that that's happening all over America. I mean, it, the big argument that was going on yesterday was, again, over policing. What are your views on this whole, and, and I don't need you to support, or I'm not throwing this out there to or not support this whole defund the police idea because I've never believed that that idea originally started off with taking money away from police officers. It just meant utilizing the money we pay in our taxpayer dollars to support police to make sure it's utilized in a way that it's it's most instrumentally can impact the community. What are you views on this? So I think I believe in smart policing. Uh, that uh, when you look at police budgets, we do spend an uh, awful amount of money uh, in police budgets where we're not solving crime. I live in a state that is ranked 50th in the nation, um, and police resources could be better spent uh, than they are. We do need more social workers. We do need more mental health experts. Police officers shouldn't be calling uh, or responding to people who are in a mental health crisis. I have a brother who's paranoid schizophrenic uh, and have dealt with uh, episodes throughout my entire childhood where uh, the option was to call literally the coroner's office to have him committed uh, if he needed mental health treatment, right? 
um, and having a governor who had decimated uh, mental health care in this state, the only person who comes in those situations is the police, right? How do we make sure that the government that we are paying into works in a way that is efficient? I think it requires us to look at where we spend our money and how we allocate that money. Uh, this is more about reallocation of resources to be more effective than it is for defunding for me. Uh, for me, uh, I have watched Republican legislatures reallocate money from education and health care in every legislative session that I've ever watched uh, in the state of Louisiana and on the federal level, uh, that we reallocate money all the time. I think it was terrible messaging uh, in some ways to use the word defund. Uh, but when you talk about do we need to visit where we spend our tax dollars, the government should be doing that in every area all the time. Uh, the same way that you or I as business owners are always going to look at where can we trim the fat, where can we move money around to be the most efficient with how we spend our resources. Absolutely. I think more and more of that message needs to be reverberated within the Democratic Party so that people come out with the right terminology, not just say, well, just no, we need to defund. Defund doesn't mean, what does that mean? And I'm glad that you explained that that way. And let me tell you, uh, in, in neighborhoods where uh, people are being carjacked or robbed or homicides are happening, they're going to call the police. <laughs> you know, yeah. there is a function and a need for police officers. We Absolutely. just want good police officers. And we want to make sure that when we spend money on policing, uh, that we're spending money in a way that actually helps us address the issues of crime. Um, and billions and billions of dollars have gone into policing from the local, state, and federal level. And we have record-breaking crime numbers. So the question becomes, are we spending this money wisely? Throwing money at a problem isn't always the solution. Looking at where those dollars are going and what are we getting out of that dollar? is where I think we need to be asking uh, ourselves questions as a country. Any other issues you want to address? That this is a winnable race here in Louisiana, uh, that uh, people look in Louisiana and say, oh, it's a ruby red state. Uh, we are 35% black, about 5% brown, 15 to 20% of the state. Uh, white population is uh, Democrat for sure. Um, and this state has a Democrat as the governor currently, the only state in the deep South with a Democrat as governor. Uh, and this is winnable. This isn't just a gimmick for us to smoke and have a conversation uh, about around the blunt, but to use this to talk about all of the things that uh, exist within the construct of this government and how we make this country stronger, more equitable and more just. Uh, and I think we do that by ensuring that uh, representation exists for uh, the people of Louisiana to be uh, a voice that can be bold in the U.S. Senate to help bring this whole country uh, to a place that's better than where we are. Well, I'm so glad that you, you know, you you presented the ad the way you did because it does allow for people to say, what? Click and then hear the broader picture and broader context. So I wish you well, sir. I hope that uh, you are successful this time around. I think you might you probably will be because you know you 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 went viral with that, that video. You know that. And, We're uh, not done. We're just getting started, brother. All right. Okay. Well, you know, and anything we can do here at Let's Be Blunt to help you or in on my other podcast, which is, you know, Free Thinking with Montel. I'd love to have you back there so we can talk about it from a free thinking standpoint of other issues that you were focused on. You always have a home here, sir. Thank you. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And we appreciate you. And I appreciate you, the viewer who's tuned in to see Mr. Gary Chambers today on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Make sure you tune into the next Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. 
Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Thank uh you. -huh.